This is an AMI podcast. I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. Hello, welcome to Triple Vision, a podcast about the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. I'm David Best. And today, we're talking about the danger of a single story. I grew up on a university campus in eastern Nigeria. My mother says that I started reading at the age of two, although I think four is probably close to the truth. So I was an early reader, and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer. And when I began to write at about the age of seven, stories in pencil with crayon illustrations that my poor mother was obligated to read. I wrote exactly the kinds of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow. They ate apples. (coughs) And they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. That was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, an author from Nigeria speaking on TED Talks about the danger of a single story. And with me to talk about the narrative of that single story, we have the Triple Vision team, Charlie, Peter, and Hannah. Charlie, you, you introduced us to this uh, whole idea of the single narrative. Why do you think this message is important to us and how does it reflect our story. When I had the opportunity to listen to the full thing, there was I had such a sense of um, relationship with Tim Amanda uh, and and her and her reflections on a single story and what that meant in her life. And I thought about sending it to all of you and you all responded in the same way that there was synergy between us and a single story that was defining us and it it took me back to 2016 when I was on the hill um, in celebration of vision month as a guest of one of the senators um, for this event being put on by CNIB and the senate and I got to the door, it was really, really noisy. And I was escorted from the door to a table with some other uh, blind people who became at that point invisible to anybody else because nobody talked to us after that. And um, and we chatted for a little while and then the speaker came on or was introduced and came on. And she started her presentation by welcoming the crowd and then said, imagine waking up in the morning as a blind person and having to get dressed. Now, imagine what it's like as a blind person to have to make breakfast. And and I was shocked by that. It was a story that had been generated for an awful long time by the agency about who we were as blind people, dependent, um, helpless, um, terrified of everyday living. And, and I couldn't stay any longer because the story I knew about my friends and myself 
was that we were educated, self-determined, independent, skilled, talented. And, and it was that, that story that was being told about us that was so scary because it defined us in everything that we did. And, and we needed to make room for a bigger story, a bolder story, more dynamic one that we could all believe in, which was that we were part of our social structure. And, and Chin Amanda captures that whole essence in her speaking throughout this presentation. And, and I was pleased to share it with all of you. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you did because we are so impressionable as children and the literature where we read in school really uh, creates who we are, our identity about ourselves and what we think of other people. Now this, despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, I had never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was no need to. My characters also drank a lot of ginger beer because the characters in the British books I read drank ginger beer. Never mind that I had no idea what ginger beer was. And for many years afterwards, I would have a desperate desire to taste ginger beer. But that is another story. What this demonstrates, I think, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story, particularly as children. Because all I had read were books in which characters were foreign, I had become convinced that books, by their very nature, had to have foreigners in them and had to be about things with which I could not personally identify. In that clip, we hear exactly what you were saying about how impressionable we are as children and the kind of literature we're given. Um, it, it creates not only our identity, but it, it sort of gives us an uh, impression of who other people are. It's something that I've been reflecting on since we've started the podcast back in um, season one and episode one, when we talked about the blinded veterans from World War One coming back to Canada and them needing an organization or some kind of association so that they could feel empowered to um, to continue to be productive. And, you know, those are the Edwin Bakers and so on who eventually founded the CNIB. And um, they seem to be the ones to have written that story from the very beginning. I think, you know, as someone who I'll, you know, has been a client of the, the organization in the past, I've worked for the organization in the past. They have been, uh, that organization has been involved in my life you know, off and on, now and again, you kind of wonder, well, how did that story get written? How did how did they write that story? How did it happen that a group of, uh, you know, Canadians who are blind and needed uh, an organization to represent them create an institution, which ultimately, I would argue, no longer represents people who are blind or visually impaired? That That's sort of a, a reflection on the single story and how, to some extent, our single story has been written. It hasn't been written by us. It may have started out being written by a group of people who are blind, but it's changed. It's now being written by, or has been at least for 102 years or whatever, written by an institution. Yes, and that whole 
story in my research as I've gone to parliamentary library archives um, in search of information on the history of blindness in Canada. It's the story is being written by that institution and by the leaders therein who have an obligation and a fiduciary responsibility to support the institution, not necessarily blind people. Because they write the story and it's a charity and they have to raise money, the problem becomes that they have to make us look like we're in need of charity all the time. Because skilled, talented, educated blind people are not necessarily deserving of charity. Is that what happened to you when you're on the Hill, Charlie, and you heard the senator talking about what's it like to get up in the morning yes. if you're blind and get yourself dressed? What What was the story she was telling there? Uh, that we were helpless and dependent, and 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 it's really scary, which is why people don't come and talk to us, because they might think they'll get the disease. Who knows? Uh, but she did become a member of their board, and and that's the that's one of the people that helped shape the stories. But I must quickly add that I too am just as guilty on the question of the single story. A few years ago, I visited Mexico from the US. The political climate in the US at the time was tense and there were debates going on about immigration. And as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were fleecing the healthcare system, sneaking across the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. I remember walking around on my first day in Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling up to tears in the marketplace, smoking, laughing. I remember first feeling slight surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with shame. I realized that I had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in my mind, the abject immigrant. I had bought into the single story of Mexicans and I could not have been more ashamed of myself. When I first heard that clip, it took me back a number of years to when I applied to, uh, a co to take a course at a community college in Vancouver. And I was told I couldn't uh, participate in it because they had uh, previously they'd had another blind student take the course who hadn't done well at all so they weren't going to um, allow me to take the course based on one blind person failing and I mean that just didn't make any sense to me so I I met with a director of the department who originally decided I didn't need to take the course because of the low performance of this other person to me, that was a real example of how she bought into the single story based on one a single example, right? I, ha I have to give her credit that once we worked it all out and once I'd completed the course, she took me aside and apologized for her behavior then. So that was a, a big moment for me because so many times we, we come out fighting when we're rejected, right? But, you know, that was one of the times I used sort of education to kind of work through the problem. I think we're, we're victims of it in many, many ways. But I think the real danger of the single story is if we as blind people believe it. 
I mean, it's one thing for the for sighted Canadians to believe it, but if we fall into believing it ourselves, then we are going to be stuck in that stereotype. So that is how to create a single story. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There is a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is nkale. It's a noun that loosely translates to to be greater than another. Like our economic and political worlds, stories too are defined by the principle of nkale. How they are told, who tells them, when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. Power gives us the power to influence others. So Peter, if we tell the story over and over again, it seems to be accepted as truth. Uh, if I can say it's blindly accepted. So who, who is telling that story and what power do they have over us? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm going to take the first part of that question and then, you know, we can all talk about the second part of that question because I think that's a really loaded question. So if you start with the first part of the question, who's been telling the story? Well, we've already talked about the service organization telling our story for over 100 years and governments buying into that story. If ads run about the needs of people who are blind and visually impaired as they've they've happened over the years and those those ads you know um, portraying people with visual impairments as needy as dependent without you without your dollars you know these people aren't aren't going to um, have a life and this goes to her point around power structures is that the reason why that's been able to take place is because certain power structures have allowed marginalized people, prevented them from participating. So rather than telling a story, which is these people are on the margins and they need your money because if they don't have your money, they, you know, they won't have any kind of a life. Why wasn't the story told about greater participation of those people in the power structures, in the economic structures, in the fabric of society. So that, that's been the problem with that story and that's how power has created that story and that's <clears throat> how that story has been told over and over and again, over and over again and left that impression in the minds of people that uh, people who are blind, uh, visually impaired are somehow needy and helpless. But I think, David, your question about power, we, you talked about, you know, why do they have power over them? Well, that, that those, that goes back to Hannah's actual statement at her, you know, what she said is, is the, the danger, the real danger is believing that. The real danger is believing that some, someone actually has power over you. You don't accept that. You don't accept that, you know, someone has power over you. You accept that you are equal and you have equal citizenship and you participate in that power. I remember the day that I decided I needed to change that power structure and challenge the status quo. Me and a couple of friends got together and drank a bottle of scotch and burned our CNIB cards because we knew if we were going to change the stories for ourselves, 
it, we would have to fight for everything we needed in the mainstream. And that there would be no option of reciting our CNIB number. And it's worked for me. Um, I, I don't use any of their services anymore. And I insist on being part of the mainstream. I use public libraries, etc. The problem still remains, though, the fact that I can be identified as a blind person that doesn't change options um, of other people. I'm, I still fall into that category, into that stereotype of being dependent and helpless. With stereotypes, it's not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Of course, Africa is a continent full of catastrophes. The immense ones, such as the horrific rapes in Congo, and depressing ones, such as the fact that 5,000 people apply for one job vacancy in Nigeria. But there are other stories that are not about catastrophe. And it is very important, it is just as important to talk about them. I've always felt that it is impossible to engage properly with a place or a person without engaging with all of the stories of that place and that person. The consequence of the single story is this, it robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. When we were talking about repeating a story over and over again, it reminded me of a quote I heard a number of years ago that has always stuck with me. It says that when you've been put in your place often enough, you become the place. So when you're told you're blind and you, you're not going <clears> to <throat> probably have a job and, you know, you just stay at home with your mom and dad and, and live on your pension and nobody else ever tells you a different story, you do start to believe that, right? And, and it's hard to fight as a single person, right, without a community around you. But I think the other huge stereotype um, that we inherited from the United States is Helen Keller. To some people, I think Helen Keller is like, you know, a model, right? And in, in your suggestion, absolutely, she's, she's yeah, she's the model. icon of 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 blind people. Right? How come she's not? Um, because her political views um, were quite. She was quite strong politically. For instance, she believed in um, in eugenics. Mm -hmm. That that really disturbed me when I found mm -hmm. that out. That that she she really didn't she she believed in oralism for the deaf community. She didn't believe they should learn sign language. She was never um, she never spoke or belonged to any group of disabled people. She held herself very much above them and and thought of herself as an able-bodied woman, just like everyone else around her, which isn't wrong. But um, she did set herself apart. She, mm. she didn't identify as a person at mm. all uh, with the disabled community, yet she's put forward as an icon. I was doing research for my uh, master's degree, and I was researching, um, I, was, I was researching blindness, and I, I was reading, uh, trying to go back and figure out, like, where did it all go so wrong for us in mm. terms of people's... Uh, beliefs about us and our abilities. And I came across a book uh, by a Dr. Simon Hayhoe from Great Britain, and it's called God, Money, and Politics. 
And he went through the archive, all kinds of church archives in, in England. And this was during the time of the Industrial Revolution when families were moving to the cities and they brought their blind family members with them too. And pretty soon the blind people ended up on the street as beggars because they couldn't get work. The church was really offended by that and rounded them all up and institutionalized them and eventually started workshops and stuff so they could earn some earn their keep a little bit. But in the in these church archives, the church believed they needed to round these people up. And it said that blind people were the product of syphilitic whores and other immoral unions. Whoa. And when I heard that that quote, I just I thought, oh my God, there it is. That is the source of our shame as blind people, if indeed you feel shame. Some people do, I do feel a bit of shame. But when I read that quote, I thought, oh my gosh, it was in writing in a church archive that that was the church's belief at that time. Stories matter, many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. I would like to end with this thought, that when we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. Obviously, stories do matter. They can dispossess or empower. Is it really possible, you think, for us to achieve a paradise? What we are planning to do uh, with the podcast, this podcast throughout the, the new season, is to talk about which single story has been told about us and, and how we need to change that single story. So when we start looking at issues like we looked at last year around colonialism, employment, education, you know, um, we, we sort of talked around it last year, but now that we know a little bit better there's probably a single story happening in the background around those things. We want to talk about that a little bit more and then where to go next. There is or should be a single story, and the single story should be one of inclusion, right? So if you tell a single story about an individual and, and it's not their story, you have excluded them. But if as a society you start to tell a story which includes everyone, and maybe it's many stories rather than a single story, or maybe it's many stories within the single story. So let's say you told the story, this, a single story about Canada, and you said within that, within Canada, you know, um, everybody has equal opportunity, whether you're blind, whether you're indigenous, whatever race you come from, then that becomes a new kind of single story. And, and maybe that's the kind of paradise that she's talking about. It's certainly an ideal and it's certainly ideal that we're still trying to st strive for as a country, but that's another take on a single story which includes everybody. So changing the single story to a more comprehensive, integrated story is really important, but there's, there's work inside of that as well. So we, we need to look at, as we move forward, issues of governance. Is it appropriate? for charities involved in the delivery of services be engaged in speaking on our behalf. We need to reclaim the narrative. For me, paradise means being able to leave my home 
navigate however I choose, go to whatever stores I need to go to, and not feel that little inkling inside of me. My individual paradise would be to just live in my community and 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 feel very um, free to go about without feeling that I'm bothering anybody, right? That I, I'm... I have an equal right to be there and, and I'm accepted equally by my community. That would be a real paradise for me. Yeah, I think you've hit it right on the head. And I think uh, to be who we are, to be able to develop our own identity, despite what the stories might be. And I think this is something we're going to be exploring as we get into season two of Triple Vision. And possibly, uh, Peter, maybe you might want to tell our listeners what's coming up and how they can reach us if they have any thoughts on the single narrative story. One person who's been exploring the single story in her writing is uh, Dr. Leona Godin, uh, who has written a book called Their Plant Eyes. She'll be our next guest, um, what she had done in, in terms of, uh, or has done in terms of telling that story is uh, put together a cultural and a historical narrative of what what is the story that has been told about blind people throughout the centuries. So she goes right back to the Iliad and uh, classical works in which blind people were portrayed in certain ways, all the way through to how did that happen in the Bible, uh, covers Helen Keller, it's, it's a fascinating uh, journey um, through literature and 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 culture in terms of how uh, blind people have been portrayed. So she'll be on next. So again, we're at triplevision21 at gmail.com, triplevision, the number 21, at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at triplevision21. So hoping uh, listeners will be able to join us for this season and don't re- don't hesitate to reach out if you've got any comments, feedback, uh, questions, ideas of stories for us. We'd love to hear from you. We would like to acknowledge that the audio clips heard in this podcast were taken from the TED Talk conferencing service. This talk can be found at www.ted.com and the title of the conference talk is The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie who is an African author writing stories about African culture. The link to The Danger of a Single Story can be found in our show notes. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Jacob Shemansky is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions and comments, you can reach us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.